We're bringing you boots on the ground insight from the ranchers, conservationists, and partners who are helping to preserve the best of the Golden State for generations to come. Join the California Rangeland Trust for inspiring stories of resilience, innovation, and hope as we get tuned into the land. Hello and welcome back to a new season of Tune Into the Land. I'm your host, Michael Delbar. Happy New Year to you all. We are excited to be back with another season of Tune Into the Land. We have some exciting things in store for 2024 that we can't wait to share with you over the course of the next 12 months. But first, I want to start off by saying thank you to all of our loyal listeners who've joined us over the last two years since we embarked upon this podcasting journey. We look forward to bringing you more conversations with more amazing guests while also welcoming new listeners to the Tuned In family. You'll remember that previous seasons kicked off with our past board chair, Mr. Andy Mills. We appreciate Andy's service as he truly did an exceptional job leading us through our 25th anniversary year. And while his term as chairman has ended, we look forward to his continued involvement as a director on the board and the passing of the reins to a new equally as talented and dedicated leader. This year means new leadership. And for this episode, we're thrilled to introduce our newly elected board chair, Carolyn Carey. Carolyn married into a fourth generation ranching family. She splits her time between Napa and the small town of Alturas in Northern California's Modoc County. She's been on the Rangeland Trust Board for nearly 10 years, bringing insight and ideas that have helped propel the organization into what it is today. So as she steps into this new leadership position, we are excited to hear her goals for the organization and what she hopes to accomplish over her two-year term. So with that, I welcome Carolyn Carey to the first episode of season three. Carolyn, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and ranching history? I was born and raised in Napa. My dad um, raised horses and um, I actually married into ranching, which um, has been a great life. I mean, it's just been fantastic, completely different. Um, big ranch, lots of cattle, back and forth, winter pasture at Lake Berryessa, which is where I have a home. And, um, and then the home ranch is in Modoc County. And I pretty much, I spend most of my time in Modoc County, but um, yeah, that's, I'm married into it. It's great. <laughs> I'm happy to have done that. Well, you've taken that involvement to all kinds of high levels, both in the NCBA, National Cattlemen's Beef Association, California Cattlemen's Association, California Beef Council, mm -hmm. and along with serving on boards of multiple other organizations like the Range Conservation Foundation. So between uh, the traveling all across Northern California, you've been very active in all these organizations. Tell us a little bit about that involvement and why you decided to get involved with all these, these different livestock organizations. Well, the involvement, actually, I was asked and um, I should learn to say no, because, you know, I probably no, belong I, I to way too many. I think we've all benefited from you not saying no, <laughs> well, so that's a good know. thing. But I originally, my involvement on boards in the industry was I was asked to be a member of the Modoc County Cattlemen's Association. And... And I was really glad to do that. I ended up being the president of the Modoc County Cattlemen's Association. And that led to my involvement in California Cattlemen. And I ended up, not ended, but 
turned out to be uh, or was elected to be an second vice president of the California Cattlemen's Association. And I've just been involved with them and NCBA committees. You know, I was appointed to the um, California Beef Council. I'm still a member of the California Beef Council. So there's from the from the state level, both with the Cattlemen's Association, the local level with the MODOC, NCBA on the national level, and then again back to the state level on the Beef Council, and then the Range Conservation Foundation, which is nationwide as well. What do you see as the role of these groups and organizations play in the livestock industry? How important are they? I think they're very important. And I think one of the things, for example, the Beef Council spreads spreads word and education about our industry to people who don't otherwise know. I mean, we are so far, our, our population now is so far removed from the land by so many generations now that it, it's a common phrase, people don't know where their food comes from. And so it's, it's, I'm really pleased to see the, what the California Beef Council does to, you know, for education. Um, I think it's terrific and how they do it is amazing. And we don't see it in Modoc County, for example, because that's preaching to the choir and the Beef Council can't afford to do that. They spend their money where it's going to do the most good. It doesn't do any good to tell people in ranchers in Modoc County, you know, how to, uh, what beef does. So anyway, that's, that uh, I'm really pleased to be a part of that. So targeting the, the bigger consumers and yeah. people who don't know anything about the ranching industry where, again, where their food comes from. So I always thought it was interesting that the, the beef councils are funded through checkoff dollars for right. every dollar for every head of livestock sold. But some of these Midwest states like Kansas that have the process, a lot of livestock through sales there, they contribute some of their checkoff dollars to California. To California, exactly. Explain why that happens. I always thought this was really interesting. It really is interesting uh, because as you say, Kansas, Oklahoma, places like that that have their population, their state population is more cattle than people. And they don't need those advertising dollars. And they partner with states like California that have huge populations. Again, like we say, people don't understand or know so they funnel their money to California, not all of it, but, you know, certain a certain amount to California for the advertising because they gain from it, too. I mean, they're providing beef across the nation. So, yeah, it, it's a great program. And it it just it's not very old. I mean, it's, oh, 10 years, maybe something like that. I mean, it's. Relatively new that the they started dollars doing are coming that. Over. Yeah, dollars are coming over, but they do it, you know, all the time now. It's big bang for the buck. <laughs> well, you've taken that experience, and you were a founding member of the Western Ranchers Beef Cooperative. Tell us a little bit more about that. What what spurred you to to, to found that organization, and and what was the role? It was a group of ranchers. Again, some of whom were founding members of this organization. Um, 
got together for um, certification, you know, for um, management certification of livestock, which was unheard of when we started this in 1998, maybe 96, 98. It's commonplace now. And all the drug companies offer certifications for, you know, your livestock. And so we, it, it just outgrew us, but it was, that's what it was, was to guarantee the consumer how these animals had been treated, not just welfare, but um, management, all the management, you know, they've been vaccinated, they've been, you know, handled this way, you know, it was, it was unheard of at the time. It kind of led, new. led the way and broke ground. Right, right. It was great. Out of that was oh, yes. was born the <laughs> born, born and raised in USA label. Tell us, tell us the history there. Um, I was at an NCBA meeting one time when country of origin labeling was a big issue many years ago. Still is. Yes, it still is. It has come back. It's resurfaced. Um, and at the time, I was in a meeting and I thought you know, well, why don't we just label it? You know, if, if it's a big deal, let's just do it. And I thought, oh, I'll look into that when I get home. And I sort of slapped myself. I'll never forget this. I sort of slapped myself and said, you're here now. Go do something about it. And so I went into the trade show to the USDA booth and I talked to them and I said, can we label beef? I mean, that was the, and they said, oh, sure. And I said, Okay, you know, what's in there's got to be some something stopping us. Well, anyway, I went through all uh, steps of what's involved and there <laughs> was nothing to stop it except to get a, get the system approved. Had to be verified. So I went through USDA in Washington for many months and got the label. It's a beef label. It's a oh gosh, fish game. Um, several other things. Anyway, I got that all um, approved through USDA as an official meat label and verification system. And so there it is. And several people have used it. Um, then that was right before mandatory labeling came on. So when mandatory labeling came, a voluntary system was not really useful, though people did do it because they liked the label. So, and it's still available. So anyway. How does a producer go about utilizing that label? Just call me. <laughs> yeah, a producer um, uses it on on his livestock. Uh, I mean, he, he just certifies that his livestock are born and raised in the USA. And then the meat label, um, is available to any grocer who or whoever who purchases that beef. So just has to be verified. That's all. I think it's has a, a lot of value, especially we learned during COVID. Right. How our empty shelves and people really starting to wake up to where's my meat coming from? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And now having and this is a, an example with the you said the resurgence of the cool issue. Right. And the labeling issue is having proof that this livestock, this meat that I'm serving was born and raised in the United States. Right. Yes. There, there are people who think even when mandatory came in, you know, I would ask people who were using it, um, 
you you know, are, it's you have to do this anyway. <laughs> and are you sure you really want to be paying for this? And it's not terribly expensive, but um, and they said, yes, we like it. We're going to stick with it. So they did. Very cool. Yeah. Well, here's some bumper stickers for you. <laughs> so stewardship in your life and your ranch has always been a high priority. Yes. Tell us about what it's like to ranch in the upper reaches of the state in Alturas, California. The forgotten corner of California. Um, it's um, it, 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 it's high desert country. It's cold in the winter and hot in the summer. Um, our ranch has is one of the best watered ranches in northeastern California. The Pitt River runs through the home ranch. And um, we have the river irrigates meadows. We have meadows there, a couple thousand acres of meadow. And then another ranch up on Devil's Garden. As far as what it's like, I mean, <laughs> ranch, you know what ranching everywhere is like. The return address on my um, envelope says, carry ranches providing for wildlife by managing the land for livestock. And it said that for many, many years. And that's just what we do. I mean, we have ducks and geese and, you know, everything, deer, antelope, um, mink in the river. <laughs> it's just interesting. But yeah. Well, that conservation ethic led you to be a founding member of the Modoc County Land Use Committee. Yes. Without assuming the, the nexus there, why don't you explain how your philosophy that you've just described translates into that committee and what that committee does for, for MODOC. It's, it's the management of MODOC County is more than 70% state or federally owned. So, you know, most every rancher is also a permittee on BLM or Forest Service, National Park Service. We have them all. Um, and what the land use committee did is start what's legally called coordination between the federal agencies and the county for the benefit of the county and the, the rangeland, the forest or BLM or whatever, making those, not all the management decisions, of course, we wouldn't want to get into every little thing that they do. But there are certain major decisions that involve permittees, involve, you know, whoever. And that's what we wanted to be involved in and legally are able to be involved. And we're one of the few coordinating counties in the country. And, um, and it's been extremely successful, extremely successful. We just had a meeting. We have a meeting every month and um, with the agencies and to coordinate the use. I mean, we bring thing, we share things back and forth. Um, what do you think about this? What do you think about that? Well, if you do that, then this will happen. And, you know, I mean, it's just coordination is what it is. It works great. Different than collaboration. It's a whole different deal. <laughs> but anyway. Has that, you feel that that's been more effective for MODOC than other areas that have uh, heavy federal and state land yes. ownerships? Yes. I do. Um, and I'm not quite sure why, except that um, 
we I should say we also have really good land managers up there too in the federal agencies, um, and so it's been um, it's been easier to work with than a lot of places, but. Coordination is the tool that will enable any of those places to have more input in what is happening on the on the ground. Conservation easements uh, on lands throughout the state are it's kind of an opportunistic uh, program. Right. It's easier to fund easements on lands that are closer to urban areas where the development pressures are higher. I think it's probably safe to say there's not extreme development pressure in, in Modoc County. Correct. But you did a conservation easement on a ranch, but it was done with NRCS through the Wetland Reserve Program. Right. Tell us a little bit about your decision to, to do an easement, what led to the decision to, to do it with NRCS, how that experience has been. Well, like many people, we needed it for an estate settlement. And... <clears throat> I tried hard to get to uh, had an appraisal, everything else to fund it or to get the easement through California Rangeland Trust. And the development at that time, the development value was not there. Um, Since then, that has changed a little bit in that the only in that the development pressure there now is from intensive ag that really that's when wild rice was a big deal. That's not so true anymore. But I mean, the development pressure is there. And my husband, Pete, said, we are not going to let this these meadows be laser leveled and turned into rice fields. And so and we needed money to settle the estate. So after we found we couldn't use California Rangeland Trust, the NRCS Wetland Reserve pilot, a grazing pilot program came because I didn't want to do a, uh, an NRCS easement if we couldn't if we couldn't use the right. land. I mean, that what's the point there? So um, that's when they had the grazing pilot and the money they were offer, offering was really good for our area. So that's what we did. And um, it's been it's been OK. It's been all right. So when there is development pressure and development occurs. Right. And a lot of time that takes out some of that critical habitat Mm -hmm. and has impacts to threatened or endangered species uh, or themselves or their habitat, which requires mitigation. Right. So you were instrumental in developing a program with the Department of Fish and Wildlife, or used to be the Fish and Game, to provide mitigation for those impacts on private working lands. Tell us a little bit more about that that experience. Um, for years, as part of the Land Use Committee and, you know, several other instances, we watched ranches being bought by, in the area, northern northeastern California, in the area by fish and game, not just for mitigation, but for whatever. A lot of it was mitigation. Um, and then they stopped doing, they stopped using the land and allowing whatever ranching process or procedure was going on there, haying, whatever it was, whatever made it desirable in the first place, they stopped doing, which <laughs> 
stopped the whole reason. And I thought the whole thing was just crazy. And so we had a pipeline come through the ranch. And I didn't dream this up until <laughs> until too late for ours because we could have mitigated all kinds of things. But the more I thought about it, the more I thought, you know, the developer has to purchase land, a certain amount of acres that Fish and Game decides, they have to purchase that land and turn it over to Fish and Game to manage, which we all know they, at the time, they didn't have the money or the, you know, they were not able to manage what they had, let alone anything new that they were requiring developers to provide. So we thought, now, wait a minute, why not put an easement on it? The rancher is the best manager you're ever going to find anyway, because he's been doing it all these years. And so, and that's, you know, I sold it to Fish and Game. Uh, not sold, but I mean, the talked with it. Yeah, the concept. And, and so they thought, you know, that's not a bad, it took a while. But they finally thought, you know, that's not too bad. So we came to a CRT meeting down here somewhere and um, presented it. And look where we are. Yeah, it's. And was that your first introduction to the Rangeland Trust? No. Um, <clears throat> uh, I knew the founders really well. And so I'd been to lots of meetings and stuff. And that's what made me think, you know. California Rangeland Trust can hold these easements. This is perfect. So today, mitigation easements are one of the three uh, mm -hmm. forms of a conservation easement. One was the purchase of those development rights by, with cash. Right. Two is the acquisition of those development rights through a donation with the landowner taking advantage of the tax benefits. And the third is that mitigation. And that mitigation easement is, uh, those projects are actually a, a big part of what we do mm -hmm. in our portfolio now. And they're, they tend to be, not, not always, but tend to be smaller acreages. But right. for the landowner, to where the requirement is to continue doing what you're doing, that habitat, the, that those critters are there because of the practices that have been in place. Exactly. So continue to do that and you get paid to do so. Right. As one of our landowner partners is fond of saying that the wildlife species they protected through their easement are the most lucrative livestock they've ever raised. That concept has been really important for projects throughout the state. Yeah, I'm really I'm really glad because, as I say, I watched the failures of fish and game purchasing ground that they didn't have the manpower or funds to manage, you know, and stopping, like I say, whatever happened on it that made it desirable in the first place. Well, that you made a big change in the way things are done in the state. So <laughs> congratulations. It's been, right, been a big boom for not only the, the landowners, but also it, it cuts down on the cost of those projects too, because exactly. it no longer is the state acquiring land and fee that they don't have the resources to, to manage. Right. But it's leaving those lands in private ownership those landowners are still managing that at a fraction of the cost, and it stays on the tax roll. Stays on the tax roll. That's it. Exactly. Stays on the tax roll. And it costs the developer, as you alluded to, much less than an outright purchase of the same amount of ground. So tell us about how all of this we've talked about led up to your involvement with the Rangeland Trust. I guess just um, being involved with the people 
through California cattlemen, the people who founded California Rangeland Trust. I was involved with them um, at that time and used to, because I was nearby the meetings, I would go to the meetings and um, that's, that's about it. I mean, I just, um, I knew everybody there. So once again, got asked to serve yep. <laughs> on a board. Well, it's been nearly 10 years. Oh gosh, yes, okay. What's that experience been like? It's been great. Um, I get to sit in on all the closed sessions. <laughs> no, it's been terrific. I, I really, very happy, enjoy coming, you know, being involved with California Rangeland Trust. And So our annual meeting is in December each year. And this last December, you were elected as the new board chair for the next two years. So share with us what some of your goals are during your coming two years of, of leadership of the organization. I want to make sure that that we're protecting ranchers. We, we are ranchers. Our board is ranchers. And we have this huge waiting list of ranchers. And um, we've grown so much thanks to the staff and boards before me. California Rangeland Trust is extremely well-known now, popular, growing in size, is, is a conservation organization, if you will, that appeals to ranchers because of ranchers on the board. And I am determined that that stays the same. And as we've said, the bylaws um, insist on that, but but I think it's critical that we we keep ranchers helping ranchers. I mean, that's that's the biggest goal as far as I'm concerned. We've got a huge waiting list. No other conservation organization does. So I think that's testament to the to the, to the board itself, obviously, well, and, but and the staff and the the fact, as you mentioned, that to be on the board, a person has to be involved in the ranching industry. Right. ranching business and that since it is in the bylaws it's not easily changed and it would take a lot of, of of change in the board to get to the point to change those bylaws which just frankly i can never see happening so that trust that it's that the organization has developed within the ranching industry is extremely valuable which is evident by our our, our queue of of projects, but it's also on the on the environmental community. I think sees us too, and has grown to respect the work we do because we're getting the conservation work done that that they may not be able to get done. Exactly. So it's a win win across the board, and so the Rangeland Trust has become that bridge organization. Right. Um, even with that, even with the rancher involvement, and the the trust that we have in the community, there's still skeptics out there that wonder why someone would do a conservation easement because doesn't that mean that it's government coming to take control of your land? There is that skepticism and it's, <clears throat> it's in sort of harkens back to the beef council. It's in areas where they don't hear our story. They don't, um, <clears throat> my home County, Modoc County, um, huge private property rights, county and population 
And it's difficult to describe in, you know, a sound bite how California Rangeland Trust is is all about property rights too, completely. Mm -hmm. um, which is not the case with a lot of other um, conservation groups or environmental conservation groups, if you will. So I just think that we have a great story to tell. Um, we've been telling it for years and years, and I, I think the results are, are, are there to, to see, and we'll get there. We'll get there. I think you're right. And, and I've, I've had conversations with folks that were of that mindset that this is the this is the heavy hand of government coming in. Yeah. And when we explain that, what is a pro private property right if not your ability to sell your development rights? Exactly. That is a private property right that you as a property, private property owner is are make, is making a decision to do something with. Mm -hmm. And so that recognizing that that is a private property right in and itself should show that this is what it's all about. Right. This is what the Rangeland Trust is about. You, you would not find stronger advocates for private property than the board members of this organization. So I think when that when that's understood those folks that I've talked to that were skeptical have come around to believe that, okay, and understand that I get it. I get it now. I think that makes a big difference in, in how this goes forward because there are still folks out there that don't grasp that. And it's, uh, it's just, it's a lack of really understanding what differentiates the rangeland trust and even our fellow partners across the country the, and the partnership of rangeland trust in the Western States there's eight other states like ours that have that same philosophy. So recognizing that and, uh, you know, as we talked about in previous times, conservation easements aren't for everyone, right. but it's a tool. And it's a tool that's very valuable and it's a tool that can save the ranch. The Rangeland Trust is was formed to be that tool. So take government out of the picture. Exactly. And it's, yes, which is huge. It's huge. And which is why we have... A waiting list, you know, of what, 90 plus ranchers who <laughs> no one else has a waiting list like that. Um, no other organization. So, And we're moving through them oh, yeah. faster and yes, faster. Yes, yes, yes. It's great. How many have we conserved now so far? So 2023 was a great year in terms of closed projects. We closed nine projects that brought us to 89 conserved ranches across the state. We now have nearly 390,000 acres conserved. We're pushing up against that 100 ranch mark and 400,000 acres both of which we'll get to hopefully this year with uh, pretty soon. The conservation team has done a wonderful job on the, on the grant writing and, and getting oh, yes. the funds and the fund development side of the organizations, raising the dollars to on the private side. And of course our communications and outreach team have done uh, a yeoman's job of telling the story telling and getting story. that word out there. So it's a great team that, that you are now the head of. Oh gosh. So congratulations <laughs> again for, uh. For taking on the chair role, and I know from a staff standpoint, we're really excited about these next two years. Well, thank and you. We look forward to continuing the great work and under your leadership. Oh gosh, thank you very much. Appreciate it. I appreciate you all. That closes the gate on this episode of Tune Into the Land. Be sure to hit that follow button so that you can be reminded when new episodes drop. 
Also, if you like what you are hearing, consider leaving us a review so we can learn more about you and encourage more people to listen in. Thanks for listening and tune in next month.